And really, you know, capitalism's just fucked all our brains. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Conrad, your audio just suddenly went a little That's bit That's because I, ah. I walked away. I'm on the other end of the room. Okay. I am, <laughs> I am uh, uh, possibly, but I, I can't confirm or deny that. Okay. Should we stop the recording? <laughs> well, the, no, the CIA is monitoring this. Yeah, it's it's best to assume that the CIA is monitoring everything. Well, they definitely are, because it's traveling across an international border, so they're collecting it. And also, they have great interest in the Candy Crush game show. <laughs> that was a key style. Oh my god. <laughs> you know what? Might have been. <laughs> I would rule it out. Our intelligence services have done stupider shit. Is Mario Lopez a spy? I wouldn't be surprised at all, actually. <laughs> Hello and welcome to season two of Spinoff Doctor Spinoff Podcast. Let's crush. Howdy. And I really struggled to come up with a quote about Candy Crush I could mangle for an intro. <laughs> so we'll go with Let's Crush. Sweet. <laughs> oh, that's that's better, actually. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Sweet. Today we're talking about the inexplicable Candy Crush game show with the OG spin-off doctor, Conrad Zimmerman. Hello, Conrad. Hello, how are you? This is weird. Yes, you're on the opposite end here, because normally you're doing the script and everything. Yeah, I, I normally handle the, well, I mean, I say I normally, I, I have in the past when we've done, when we actually did episodes of the spinoff Doctors, and and I it, it kills me, because like, for the last two months, every week I say to myself, I'm going to write another script, we're going to get back on that, <laughs> and then life just happens. You know, that's what happens when you try to take on too many jobs because none of them pay you enough on their own to keep you alive. You're constantly sort of jumping from one thing to the next to the next. And yeah, I I've got tons of films that I'd love to talk to Steph about. And I can't seem to get my shit together, but we will one day do another one, I promise. More video game films just keep coming out. I mean, this Mario one turned out to be like one of the biggest films of all time or something like that. Yeah, uh, I haven't watched it yet. You're better off. Am I? Personally, I think that, but you know, uh, it, it's kind of one of those things that's going to be avoid uh, unavoidable. You'll see it at some point, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, I'll, I'll feel some sense of obligation. I mean, you know, my wife would like to watch it and, and, and I would too. I mean, I... That cast is so good. Yeah, the cast is good, uh, but it's, there's just not not much to work with. That's a shame. Well, I'll, I'll 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 look forward to that in the sense that it is in my future. <laughs> I think it's an okay film. Yeah, it's not bad. It's kind of like Sonic the Hedgehog. But Sonic the Hedgehog is like terrible propaganda, and in my opinion. Uh, a subtle anti-vax, uh, anti-science message. But that's just me. It needed more Mario Lopez. <laughs> now, you see, if they cast Mario Lopez... As Mario? I'd be all about it. He can say, it's-a-me Mario, and he wouldn't be lying. That's true. 
So to complete our match three, I'm also joined by Daniel. Are you ready to crush some candies, Daniel? Yeah, I guess so. Um, uh, you know, I, I didn't plan any sort of uh, fun uh, intro thing for myself on this particular one um, because I found the topic very, uh, I don't know what the word I'm looking for is, just like mind-numbing. <laughs> Uninspired? Yeah. Yeah. You have to really focus on this yeah. to be able to watch it. And that was a problem. Because I remembered I needed to watch it uh, 45 minutes before we started recording. <laughs> and it is a 40-minute episode. Mm. And I'm guessing about 30 seconds in, your mind just kind of slid away from it. Well, I mean, I was making coffee and, you know, <laughs> doing my morning routine while it was on. It wasn't easy to pay attention to because there wasn't... For something that has so many bright colors going on, it really does not do anything to draw your eye to it. Mm. And it's, yeah, it's just kind of a mess. It's just assaulting you with visual information. Did we all watch the uh, the YouTube uh, bootleg yes. of the pilot? Something particular about that upload of the pilot, uh, the audio is just absolute garbage. And like that drove my eyes away even more. It was just, like, painful. But the nice thing about the bootleg upload that we watched is whoever recorded it, like, yelled at the screen. Yes. <laughs> and I'm so here for that. Like, that was the high point. I actually went back and watched that part again. That made me so happy. And actually, if anything, that should make the producers of the show happy because that's what they wanted, right? Hmm. They wanted people to watch other people struggle playing Candy Crush and get so into it that they were yelling at them where matches are as though they could be heard. Yeah. It's such uh, a fertile fodder for uh, game show television. But at the same time, Candy Crush is a game where... There's so much to look at that your opportunities to make that observation are low because it also is changing against your will. Mm. The people on the screen are making moves that are changing the shape of the board. And so you don't get time to find something that they haven't, basically. And you're visually drawn to where they are because it's on a big board. Yeah, unless, though, the contestant is just bad at the game, which, you know, I'm surprised they got to the final round and then that's where our uh, our, our uploader jumped in right. <laughs> to, to suggest matches. That, that is the thing. They took them 30 minutes of this 40-minute video before the viewer decided to say anything. They might have been in a coma. That would be believable. <laughs> They just woke up. A, a sugar rush chroma. And then we're just like, Jeremy, you fucking idiot. <laughs> so, brief introduction to Candy Crush. It's a mobile and browser free-to-play match three game with lots of monetization. Basically, there's a grid of candies that the player must match into rows or columns of threes. And from this simple start, the developer King managed to make a game generating revenue of over $493 million in three-month period at its peak in 2014. Good God. Indeed. Conrad, what's your experience with Candy Crush? 
Um, I think I've played it. By the time it came along, it wasn't an innovation mm. in any way. You know, it was another match three game from my perspective. Uh, it just happened to be one that landed on a platform at a time when it would hit. I, I mean, I really think that it was just timing. It could have been any match three game, but one would eventually do this. So I have very little experience with it specifically because it, it came out when I was working in games media. Hmm. And so I feel like at some point I must have downloaded it to a phone and tried it. And maybe not even my phone because I'm weird about what goes on my phone <laughs> because seemingly everything that, that like makes me up as a person digitally is contained in this device and i'm not into it i actually hate the fucking thing i don't touch it all my social media i do in browser i hate this thing <laughs> really i truly do you're probably better off yeah probably i it's just i think part of it is that i i'm right at the right age to be old enough to think that this technology is bad right like i didn't grow up with it it came into my life in my mid-20s and the more i watch it the more i think that we we just sort of um let this technology over overtake us in in really horrifying ways i'm kind of of a similar thing in that like i grew up during the 90s uh before mobile phones and everything was a big thing and I do occasionally find myself thinking thoughts along the lines of, like, five-year-old playing with a tablet? That seems a bit young for them. Yeah. That's where it gets hard. Because, you know, here I was given pretty unfettered access to technology from a very young age, too. The technology was different, you know. The level of connectivity wasn't there. I was playing Streets of Rage at age five, which is objectively far too young. Sure. And, you know, now this is a little different, but I was going on like local bulletin board systems at 12. Mm -hmm. And and those were not places for a child to be. Well, I, I think that there's a difference, though, you know, and, and it's due to the way that touchscreens and phones and tablets and stuff, um, the ease of entry is so low versus if you give a five-year-old uh, a dial-up internet and, you know, bulletin boards, they'll get bored or whatever versus you would have a natural curiosity that would drive you where other people your same age would be like, this is stupid, I'll go play, you know, tennis or whatever. Yeah, I don't know that I don't know I don't know that I agree with that. I mean, not, not to say that uh one wouldn't find one more interesting and accessible than the other, but if you only have the one, right? If that is effectively like the bleeding edge of this shit, it's still enough to capture your attention. Um I mean, it was, certainly was for me. Uh, I was uh, obsessive about computers and online interactions through my teens and, and, and into my early 20s. And then I, I sort of started to think about it in, in some other terms. But I mean, even the phone stuff, when it came along, I, I thought, oh, well, this is useful. This is interesting. This is practical. Mm. And 
as more time has gone on, and I've always used it in that way. I've always seen it as a device for accomplishing tasks. But as more and more of the world seems to try to move its way onto the device, the less I understand it, right? Mm. I know people who do art exclusively on their phone. Mm -hmm. And I don't get it. Because yes, while you do have that touch input capability that so so sort of like drawing, you know, with stylus or or whatever, um, the interface is universally bad and imprecise. Yeah. That's across the board. That's like everything about this device is imprecise. You know what it was built to do? Send text messaging and talk on the phone. People have grown up with it now, so it seems natural that that's what they'll use. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's been normalized a lot. It's just, it's so inferior for so many things that people actually choose to use it for. And it baffles me. Like, it just really confuses me. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I just actually uh, bought a house and my wife, all of the documents we had to sign, did 100% of that via the phone. And I'm like, what? How? Why? My new <laughs> landlord. I, I moved a few months ago. And my new landlord uses a, a rent management app that um, that for some reason I have to pay the $1 service fee every <laughs> month <course>. on <laughs> for, for having the privilege of, you know, paying them in a bank transfer. Is there a like, little option for tipping as well? Oh, no, not in this one. <laughs> not in this one. But I had a bit of a, a, a tiff with this rent management app. Um, and it's not, I don't have it installed on my phone. They have a web portal. That's where I do it all. I'll be fucking good God damned if anything connected to my landlord is on my phone. <laughs> that is just never going to happen. But I was getting these emails five days before my rent was due, reminding me that my rent is due. Now, call me fucking crazy, but you think I'm not spending the preceding 25 days of the month trying to figure out how I'm going to pay the rent? That's how it works. Why are you emailing me five days in advance? And so I went into the settings of this rent application, and there is no way for me as a tenant to opt out of anything email related. Oh, my God. Nothing. It's entirely at the discretion of the landlord what gets sent to me. So I uh, contacted the company and I asked them about it. And I was like, hey, uh, how do I stop getting these messages? And they said, oh, well, you'll have to ask your landlord to do that. We can't do that. And I was like, well, and, and hear me out here. Because I didn't ask for this, this uh, could possibly mean your company is complicit in violations of the... Uh, covenant of quiet enjoyment which is to say you can't be harassed by your landlord uh, it's a, a covenant that exists in a majority of united states states in terms of their rental agreements um it, it's just the law you get to enjoy the place that you're renting at your discretion without harassment you don't get daily letters saying pay me now pay me now right shit like that um, you know, you have to be notified 24 hours in advance if they need to come do maintenance on the property, things like that. And and so 
I, you know, I was like, hey, you you might want to look at this because I mean, I'm going to contact my attorney general because I think this is bullshit that you can do this. But, um, you know, I, I think I'm probably not going to be the only one. And suddenly they came back to me with a way to disable all messages <laughs> from them. And, and I was like, OK, well, that's not what I want either, because if there's some problem with the building or something and my landlord needs to contact me, this is the means by which they have chosen to communicate for God knows what reason. Hmm. So, uh, no, I, I need that. Uh, and I did work it out with the landlord to not get those messages. And they were very nice about it. I just wanted to be a dick to a corporation that created a, uh, you know, a middleman situation and no doubt is doing obscene data collection. And, uh, oh, it's just, it's so gross. When the internet came along and everyone was like, we're going to do everything this way. I was like, yeah, that sounds great. And then the more it's happened, I'm like, oh, this is bad. <laughs> this is really bad. It really kind of fits in, I think, with what the innovation with Candy Crush was, which was, like you said, not the gameplay. What the innovation was, was the monetization. Mm -hmm. When it came in on Facebook, first of all, on Facebook, you've got social aspects, so you've got the viral spread. But there's also, like, they designed the game to push people into spending money aggressively. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So you took a game which on its own is perfectly harmless, but in the format they did it, it became something far more insidious. Predatory. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it, it, yeah, they built a, a predatory app and, um, and it was very, very, very successful for them. And King did so well that they got subsumed into the monster that is Activision Blizzard. Mm-hmm. And then just a few months afterwards, they announced this TV show. Mm, yeah, yeah, they that had to have been in the works for a while ahead of that. I suspect that that was already in production or pre-production. When did the acquisition happen? Uh, February 2016, if I remember. And then the show was announced. Oh, okay. October 2016. Yeah. And then it came out July. That's still real fast to put together a, a TV contract, get a production company mm. put together. I, I suspect that they were working on this before the acquisition. And it might have been part of the reason that it was bought, because it was clear that the company was interested in growing and expanding the, the Candy Crush brand in new areas. And that might have been appealing to investors. I, I don't know. I imagine so, because, I mean, at this point, Candy Crush was, it was declining from its peak. So it was right. kind of at the point where they're like, we need to try and expand it, move into other areas, try and keep this going. And then this game show happened, and it turned out everybody hated it. <laughs> like, extremely negative reactions from critics and audiences, just Across the board, nobody was happy with this. I mean, I get it. <laughs> it's it's um bad. And I like show well, I don't know. I want to say I like shows like this. I have liked shows like this in the past. Um Nick Arcade 
back in the day, mm. you know, had its big wall and, the, you know, the projector screen and they would wave at stuff. It's like connect before connect. This it has, you know, elements of you know, like a double dare or uh, Nickelodeon guts, you know, the physical challenge element of it. Um, American Gladiators is probably the, you know, progenitor of, of all of this. Uh, there's a really good American Gladiators documentary that just came out. Um, I think it was on Netflix. Yeah, I saw that. I saw that. Yeah. Oh, I'll have to check that out. I didn't know that. You should. You really should. I, I It was strangely emotional. Like they did a they did a good job of of making you feel for the gladiators and and their experience. That was really interesting. Yeah, American Gladiators was a big time Saturday morning uh, uh, viewing in in my household growing up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We had UK Gladiators. That was its own own thing. I never saw American Gladiators, but I watched it when I was a kid growing up. That was. I mean, it's a similar kind of thing in that I think what this show is trying to do and have a lot of physical activity and challenges, but I mean, I'll kind of get into it when we talk more about the individual games, but the physical aspect just doesn't work here (laughs) for a few different reasons. With over one trillion levels played, Candy Crush is one of the most popular mobile games in the world. Candy Crush. Now it's the largest interactive television experience ever. This is Candy Crush. Where teams will climb, swing, and match candies as fast as they can. Oh, that was a casket right there. Swipe it away, the competition. Who wants it more? Yeah! Throughout the night, teams will compete in qualifying rounds. They are dominating this challenge. The winner of each round Sugar Crush. earns the advantage of choosing which of the four king-size challenges they'd like to play. We're doing the candy ladder. Whoa, this is really hot. And sacrificing his whole body. Full contact candy crush. And in the end, the two teams with the most matches on the king-size boards will face off for $100,000. For your cheese, get it. Let's crush. The neck and neck, this is going to be close. Hold on for the ride of your life. Sugar Crush! Miraculous comeback. They're going home $100,000 richer. We're so excited! Here's your host, Mario Lopez. Now, first of all, Daniel. Conrad, I do have an observation to make about your people, the Americans. <laughs> you are a boisterous people. We are. We're very loud. A lot of energy. And this show has a lot of boisterousness. To an extreme degree, I would say. We start off with a boisterous Mario Lopez giving an overview of the show while highlights of the most boisterous parts of the show play and this includes a woman screeching to such a boisterous degree that I think she caused me mild eardrum damage. Apart from brief interludes, the audience is just shouting, the contestants are shouting, Mario Lopez is shouting to get heard over (laughs) all the shouting, the contestants are bouncing off each other 
in their enthusiasm for this game. Yeah, that's but that is you're, I mean you're not wrong. This is every American event. This is just who we are, unfortunately. And I'm sorry about that. <laughs> I mean they they know that they're competing against the screen that's in your hand. You know, this is for a lot of people background noise while you are looking at your social media or playing Candy Crush. Indeed. Yeah, I could see that. And the thing is in the UK it's so much different with game shows. Oh yeah, yeah. It's all, it's much calmer, it's much more people, like, making snarky comments against each other, and the host will be a lot kind of more smoother and slower paced. I mean, to be fair, this is one version of the American game show, Mm. right? I mean, we do have ones that are a lot less uh, energetic than this. I mean, you look at Jeopardy. Mm-hmm. That is a, 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 a. It's not stodgy. Certainly, um, it, it's always been pretty light. Trebek could tell a joke. Um, Ken Jennings, I think, is kind of stiff and awkward, but it's fine, you know. But it, that's a more serious sort of thing. It's more respectful. But we we love spectacle. There's something about crowd energy that we seem to resonate with. Our game shows are a bit like soccer matches for you. <laughs> right like it, it's got that energy seemingly all the time uh maybe slightly lower chance of violence breaking out but if the violence does break out you know it's going to have a gun involved and then all bets are off right mm. it's that sort of thing the uk we empathize more with a schadenfreude kind of tv like we we don't necessarily want people to win the games we want them to fail in amusing ways and mm. in particular ways where you can make fun of them for being lower class that is that that's right. a great way to win a british person's heart making fun of lower class people i gotcha we have an element of that in our game shows it's one of my favorite things to observe in them but we go for sympathy right we go for the heartstring that's how we sort of want to look down on our lower classes ninja warrior does that yeah yeah they all do they all any any game show where they ask the contestant so what are you going to do with the money if you win i that's my favorite question in any game show because sometimes sure it's like oh i'm going to go on a trip or i'm going to go do something fun you know and that's fine but often is not it's I'm going to pay my college loan mm-hmm. or my favorite was in the first season of the relaunch of Name That Tune, which was shot during COVID. Mm. And this is this is a fascinating game show. Uh, Name That Tune is it, it, it was on 70s and 80s in the United States. And it's a game where they play music and you have to name the song that they're playing. That, that's in essence what it is. And. They decided to bring it back, and in 2019 or 2020, they you know during the height of COVID, so it would have been 2020. They shot a season of this show, and I was just like, "How did they do this? How did they get away with it?" Right? And as I'm finishing watching the first episode, I realized they shot it in Australia, <laughs> but the contestants were clearly Americans, all expatriates. Yeah, they cast the entire show out of American expats living in Australia so that they could have a live audience and get around COVID restrictions. 
which then led to my next question. Okay, this prize money they're getting, are these dollar amounts American or Australian? Because there's a difference and it's mm. significant. But getting back to it, this, this name that tune contestant, with the money, they're going to replace their wheelchair. That's what I love about American game shows. Ooh, delicious. There is an element of this. I was going to bring it up later, but most of the contestants here are talking about giving money to charity or, or rather vague. Well, there. this is a celebrity game show, at least in this episode. I don't know about future episodes, but this one, they are teams of people who have been on reality TV. And oftentimes they do charity stuff and certainly a, a, a proper celebrity they would always do it for charity mm. that's that's how we do that here um because we have the view that these people are fucking rich and it would be distasteful for them to win money when they could have done a show that had normal people on and wouldn't have gotten as much ratings and uh advertising revenue thereby and so like it would be really really icky if our you know wealthy and talented public figures went on game shows and then just won more money for themselves that they don't need, right? There is that here because one of them, Kelly, and I find this such to be a sign of the times, she says she's trying to afford a down payment for a house in Seattle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's her reason for being on the show. Yeah. And I like that they, they let her give her, her uh, reason first, and then subsequently each one of them hangs her out to dry by saying they're playing for charity. Each one of them. <laughs> mm. Mm. Well, I mean, Seattle home prices in 2017 would be bad. Mm. They, they, they would be bad. Post-2008, that huge meltdown, it took about 10 years for home prices to start recovering back to where they were at. Um, and they still haven't fully recovered in a lot of places. I don't want to give the impression that that didn't cause lasting, in some cases, permanent damage to wealth in this country. But um, by that point, and especially in a place like Seattle, which is a major tech sector, yeah, trying to win $100,000 so that you could have a down payment on a house would be, uh, that'd be about right. <laughs> um, and that's before also the other thing about American game shows that I think a lot of people don't realize or aren't aware of when they're watching it is that the amounts that they are winning are not at all what they're going to get in take home. Really? No, because you have to pay taxes on that. Oh, of course. Yeah. And uh, price tax is, I believe, 40 percent. Jesus. Like it, it just counts as, uh, you know, additional non-taxed income and uh, personal income of that. Yeah. Like, and that's what, I mean, that's what my tax rate is as a, as a independent contractor freelancer, the government takes 40% of my, my money. Um, now I get to deduct things to balance that out. I function as a business. So things that are expenses that I need to spend that money in order to make this money doesn't get taxed, but yeah. I mean, that's that's what it is. Um, and I'd be fine with that if, you know, other people paid their taxes in this country. Like, say, the people who have all the money, if they paid their taxes. Yes. I would not give a shit 
that I have to do this. But you know, these the, these people who are are going to win a hundred thousand dollars, they're they're going to wind up with sixty k of that. And and the way that tax structure works here in the United States is pretty devastating in some cases. And there was an incident where Oprah Winfrey, when she still had her show, you know, she used to in the last year she would do these outrageous giveaways of things. Everybody gets a car, right? Well, and that's exactly what I'm talking about. She had an episode where uh, she had her audience was full of teachers, and it, you know, isn't it great? that we're going to help all of these teachers and you get a car and you get a car and you get a car. And more than two thirds of those people had to sell the car <laughs> that they won because the value of the car was taxed. And so they had to pay 40% of the value of the car to the government. And they didn't have it because they're teachers and they're underpaid. And that's why we were giving them the car. Juicy. So wow. Oprah Winfrey uh, rewarded everybody in the audience with a bigger tax bill they couldn't pay. <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> Correct. I was. It's made me think of one of... This is a more recent thing in the UK. I don't know if you saw it. It was on This Morning, I think, where it's one of the call-in things and it had a Wheel of Fortune where somebody calls in and then they host wheels around and they get the prize one of the prizes was heating for three months oh my god no and you had a caller from public being like oh yeah i'd like that that would help a lot oh. it's so dystopian. Oh god wow yeah that is bleak i mean i mean we're in the hunger games at that point yeah yeah pretty much wow chocolate for this game show there's four teams of two and the teams compete against each other essentially to play a game of candy crush on the biggest touch screen in the world and the show is very proud of this touch screen they constantly talk about how big it is well and it appears it appears to be constructed out of a a bunch of like i don't know maybe 48 inch touchscreen displays mm. sort of stacked in a grid so it's not even the biggest touchscreen really it's it's just a lot of them it's like how in the 80s you get like a wall of tvs and it would be kind of like a really big tv but not really yeah yeah they make like a composite image out of out of like nine tvs and now you've got a massive square right and and i mean you know i can see their argument you know those are all linked together or the software is you know getting information from all of them at once you can argue that it's the biggest touch interface but it's not a single screen i mean i'm just reminded of like uh, all the articles i've read about we're running out of rare earth metals that are used in these touch screens and i just can't uh help but think about their hubris <laughs> this is kind of shown in the future this is the nadir of Western civilization. <laughs> this is what caused the collapse. Look at my works. Nothing remains but the rare earth minerals. I, I would hope that they recycled them at the least once the show petered out. I think they ditched everything to do with this as soon as possible. I mean, they didn't even, like, copyright claim the episodes on YouTube. <laughs> they did not want anything more to do with this. 
Although that being said, in further monetization efforts, uh, you you can watch the official versions for three ninety nine a stream. Really? Yeah, I'm not paying that. I mean, no, <laughs> no. matter what my curiosity is, I'm not paying that. We have our teams here, and they are from Big Brother and Survivor. And I get the idea of having celebrities on to kind of promote a new show and, you know, get people in from the big uh, Survivor audiences and Big Brother audiences. But these people seem really mid-tier. Like, these... Have you heard of any of these people? They don't seem to me to be household names kind of thing. Well, I don't think that that... Okay, I mean, I'm I'm probably the wrong person to ask. I have watched Survivor. Mm. Like, that was a show that my, my parents liked a lot. I would have dinner with my family every Sunday. That's when it aired. And so we would watch it. And it started when I was in college. Um, and I remember the first casting call for Survivor when they announced this show was going to be a thing. And I thought about applying. I gave it serious consideration. I was um, 19 years old. I was in, I, I don't want to say good physical condition, but I was very healthy at that time. I had a lot of stamina and, um, and I'd been a, a Boy Scout. And so I had a lot of survival skills already. Mm. You, you mean we could have had Jonathan off road rules and Conrad off survivor. <laughs> and I'm so like, I'm so glad that I probably would not have been interesting enough to be on that show. Even though, even though at that time, this being the early days of reality television, normal people could be on those shows. That's no longer the case. Mm. Everybody who comes onto these shows already has an Instagram, you know, fan base of some kind, or, you know, everybody is already an influencer or that's their goal. Yeah, because the producers of the show want you to bring your audience to the show. I think that that's part of it, but I think it's more that they want people that are polished and camera ready. Mm. I think they want people who are going to be interesting on camera to watch. Um, and there's a certain mold that they find works for that and they stick with it. It's pretty remarkable because I, I watch, uh, I like to watch old reality television from time to time. And uh, one of the ones that I enjoyed a lot in the old days was uh, The Amazing Race. And you would just get like elderly couples on there being racist. <laughs> like just straight up racist. They're in India being racist. Wow. And it's amazing. But they were normal people. You just don't, you don't really see that anymore. It was a big thing on Big Brother in the UK. For some reason, they got a celebrity from India. Shilpa Shetty, I think her name was. She came over to be in Big Brother UK. And the UK contestants were just incredibly racist towards her. And it was just really horrible. Of course, at the same time, the networks are like, oh, this is horrible, racism bad. But at the same time, it's also like, oh, everybody, look at this. Isn't this horrible? They're being really racist. Ah. <sighs> 
yeah, I mean, uh, it makes makes good TV. Mm. Uh, you know, a shit show makes good TV, I guess. Well, it's it's funny, too, because as old as this show is that I'm watching with this, you know, older couple being racist in India, I have to wonder how offensive it was in the context of the time to people. Because mm. I'm looking at it, you know, with 20 years further experience and, you know, having undergone a lot of consciousness expansion of my own and more clearly able to see how incredibly racist this is. Would I have at the time? Maybe not. Um, it, there's a, a lot of it that cultural acceptability has shifted on in such a way that it, it's hard to tell. But anyway, to get back to the point, I, I have watched Survivor but that was 20 years ago, and I've never watched Big Brother. So there was no way in hell I would recognize any of these people from six years ago on these series. And I watch, I, I watch a lot of reality television, if I'm honest, like a ton of it. It's a little bit embarrassing. We watch all of those terrible reality dating shows, all of them. <laughs> but I won't go outside of the experience of the show to know more about these people, right? Because for me, they're characters on a show. You're not going into like um, AO3 and writing your fan fiction about all the candidates. I'm not writing fan. I'm not interested in their relationships outside of the show. This is a fiction that I'm watching, right? It is constructed by producers and editors and is not going to be an accurate reflection of who these people actually are. Mm -hmm. And I, I, yeah, I, I'm not into fame either. Well, it, it's it's strange to me that you know, I, I, for whatever reason, I guess you know, jumping to the end of the the show, I did look up Kelly Wentworth, who was uh, one of the winners, and on uh, there is a Survivor Wiki fandom page that has a full entire uh you know dossier on this woman and then links to her social media and i'm like that's strange that like you're saying like she as far as the show's concerned and i'm concerned at home she's like a made-up character but they're like no you can like find instagram posts from her at, at her wedding with her husband and i'm like that's strange that that's that's not real is it i mean it it, on the one hand these people are, are putting themselves out there and in a position to have this kind of parasocial intrusion into their lives mm -hmm. you know they're they're making choices there but it still feels inappropriate for me to go and like observe these people's day-to-day -day lives yeah it creeps me out and it's the sort of thing that has always sort of driven me uh one to withhold a lot of my life from being online because as you know relatively public as i am i don't talk about my personal life very much um outside of fun anecdotes sure it's not that it's yeah it is it's nobody's business like it, it, if you care about it you know me on a personal level and and then otherwise you you don't it's just entertainment for you on some level right and so yeah you know that's why i've never wanted significantly more success than i've had right 
I've always wanted to make the things that I make, have people appreciate them, and then be able to go back home and quietly enjoy not being out there. I, I, I need to have some separation. Yeah, I mean, it seems like you hit like a, a a limbo bar that you just some of these folks want to keep going under because they have to just keep maintaining the level of fame that they they hit when they were on Survivor. And I mean, even on Kelly Wentworth's page, it's you zoom, zoom down to post Survivor, and it's here she is on an episode of Price Is Right, and she's just sure. continually chasing that same high. Well, she has to pay for her house. Right. Well, that's right. yeah, exactly. <laughs> like that that's kind of it. I mean, it's a hustle. They they need to make a living, and I don't begrudge them that. Um that's that's got to be hard. Like it has to be really really difficult to maintain that level of awareness about yourself that you are then seen as profitable to brands and other people uh to exploit your image. It's the sort of thing that I feel like they have to be too busy to sit down and really think about what's happening to themselves. Because if you did, it would be crushing despair. Right. I, I, I do agree. And it, it is a thing of like people, are, they have to put so much of themselves out there. And unless they're very, very lucky or already rich, they're not going to have any control really of how their image is used and what storyline is made out of them. Like they're they're not gonna be all Kim Kardashian. No, God no. Nowhere close. I mean most reality television people that pursue that, they they don't wind up rich. They might make a living. But I think about Jonathan, I think Jonathan did it right, if I'm honest. You know, I I uh I've made it my mission to make him famous. <laughs> but um that was the right call divine just get out yeah i mean he's incredibly well adjusted yeah for having been on you know one of the most watched reality tv shows from that era yeah since my involvement with him and and telling people that you know hey he was on an episode of uh, this show you know 20 however many years later 25 years later they're like oh i actually saw that season it was good or you know whatever and sure I'm like that's that's strange I, but that was the era of 1998 i kind of feel it's like one of the contestants i should say the teams are frankie and caleb davon and paul joe and kelly and jeremy and boo frankie as the show again is really eager to tell us is Ariander Grande's brother. <laughs> and it just feels vaguely sad in some kind of way. Of like it's like for the show itself, because it's like, look, we're connected in you know six degrees of Kevin Bacon style with Ariana Grande. We couldn't get Ariander Grande, but we got her brother. <laughs> well you know there's a whole show premised on this now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, it's uh, My Claim to Fame, or Claim to Fame, I think it's called. It is a reality show uh, with you know some sort of reality competition show. I've watched an episode of it uh, where all of the contestants are relatives of actually famous people. Wow. You've got the, uh, the Estevez family, because I know there's uh, 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 Estevez's 
you know, like Charlie Sheen's family that. Well, that's the yes, the Sheen family that, you know, yeah. Estevez is their true real, uh, last name. Their their given name, but they're Sheen's now. Martin, that patriarch, you know, fuck Emilio taking his old name back. No, 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 no. <laughs> Emilio Sheen. No, actually, I love Emilio. I like that whole family, honestly, uh, for, in terms of like performers. That's one of the few like dynastic, um, you know, Nepo baby <laughs> We would call, yeah, I mean, we call Charlie and Emilio Nepo babies now, right? Mm. but they are so talented and so entertaining. Well, Charlie Sheen certainly, like, he is so different from his father in terms of his public persona in many ways. He's really kind of made himself into his own little, well, not little, but like a niche. Like, Charlie Sheen is memorable in his own right not just as a member of a family. Oh, yeah. Well, <laughs> yes. I mean, um, it was hard to not have the very public mental breakdown that he had. That's another weird corner or weird chapter in our cultural history. Watching this guy like fall apart and putting him on television to do it. The tiger blood stuff? Yeah. Was that was that on Alex Jones's show? He might as well have been. No, I don't. I don't think it was. I don't think it was. Um, it was. Uh, but but there was like a big like major network interview. That's, yeah, with him about that, and and that was where the, like the tiger blood and uh, and winning yeah. and all of that came from. I think it was uh, ABC. Okay. might have done that interview. I think these days, though, the way to show your celebrity having a breakdown is to go on Alex Jones. Like, if Charlie Sheen had that breakdown now, he would go on Alex Jones and, you know, have a chat with Roseanne and Kanye about um, how they're being silenced. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely an, an ecosystem that has sort of sprung up to catch these people as they fall. But I think if I think if it, it happened to Charlie Sheen, he'd have gone to Fox News first. There'd have been a progression. Like nobody winds up on Alex Jones right away. Like you do have to fall a few steps from that position. I mean, look at Kanye. That's exactly what happened to him. He went on Tucker and Tucker interviewed him. And then Fox executives edited the interview to take out the most anti-Semitic things. And he was like, well, I'm not getting my message across. I'm getting silenced by Fox News. I got to go. I got to go deeper. That's how that came along. They kicked the can down the road to, to Alex Jones's house. You don't just leap into the outdoor septic tank. Well, I think on some level, these people or the people around them, if you know who Alex Jones is, and that's very hard to not know who Alex Jones is by this point in our history. You know, pre-9-11, absolutely, you could have fallen in to, oh, I'm going to do this radio show in Austin. Fine. Because you look at uh, Eric Andre, right? Have you seen the Eric Andre show? Oh, yeah. I haven't. Sorry. All right. So the Eric Andre show is a send up of of celebrity talk shows. You know, you're, you're Jimmy Fallon's and Kimmel and that sort of thing. And what Eric Andre does primarily his shtick is pranking. And so they book these guests to come onto the Eric Andre show without them 
really knowing what it is that they're appearing on. And then he does something absurd and uncomfortable. And the comedy is derived from their reactions. Yeah, like he'll he'll have like fake uh, barf like loaded up in in a secret thing, and he's just suddenly is barfing, or or his desk will like explode, and a person will be in the desk, and yeah, yeah, it's just some sort of weird surprise or strange direction that the interview is going. One of the seasons, Eric Andre did not bathe for an entire year, <laughs> and you could tell. <laughs> yeah, but it's not ever explicitly stated either which is an interesting element to it he is he smells fucking disgusting <laughs> throughout this entire run of episodes right he doesn't say anything about it but occasionally a guest will <laughs> and it's so odd it's it's so and, and as a viewer you have no idea that this is happening because you can't smell him you are that's a sense you don't have available to you but the people on the show all sure as fuck can. And the knowledge that you are watching them and you you know if you have, you know, gotten familiarity with the externalities of the production of this show, now you're watching it knowing he fucking reeks. And everybody who's participating in this process is having to do so under that condition. It, like, changes the comedy entirely. <laughs> and they put the guests... As soon as they're with him, they're off kilter. Right. Yeah. It's it's really he's he is a brilliant comedian. Uh, and I'm not a big prank person. I don't typically go in for that sort of thing. I think that they're often mean spirited. But if you're doing it to celebrities, that's different. These are entertainers. A lot of times they're comedians. They should know how to roll with something. When it's on them for not doing the research of the show they're about to be on. Yeah, that's the other thing. Andre never lies to them about being on the show. You know, he just says, you know, well, often I think he just books with a beleaguered PR person while they're in the middle of a tour and says, hey, you want to come in and do a quick two hour, you know, quick one hour thing, mm -hmm. you know, while you're doing your book tour? Yeah, that's that's how Alex Jones used to get good guests because they just they just saw, oh, this guy, he's not left or right, quote unquote, he's really very he's a bubble right. left right paradigm <laughs> yeah right. yeah but they'll get and then they'll be like you come on you chat a bit and everything and then when they get on they find out this guy's kind of crazy <laughs> what i but i also think you know that that a lot of times you know people just don't have time or and they get a lot of these requests uh and they just don't look into what they're about to be on you know and i could say this to a certain extent, from experience, I, I produce a live stream uh, on Sundays where we have guests very frequently called Red Planet. It's a, a leftist roundtable discussion show about how we make the world a better place. And I know that most of the guests that are on there did not bother to watch the show that I sent them in advance to watch. And I can't blame them. It's a three hour fucking show. They've got things to do. Now, we're not trying to take advantage of them so it's fine but i can absolutely see how uh people who have lives and are busy open themselves up to this i mean hell i didn't listen to an episode of this show <laughs> well, how many times have you got like people coming on who were like expecting to talk about mars and then suddenly they're spending three hours talking about leftist politics and they're just <laughs> like i didn't think this was what i was doing 
that well that hasn't happened yet <laughs> I'm, I'm pretty upfront if you read the paragraph that i send <laughs> it explains what the show is you, you're probably not going to think mars but um well i mean you know they're commies on mars luxury space communism well it's actually uh if, if you take the uh robert heinlein stranger in a strange land martian though they're definitely communist hmm. so yeah i mean they're also not really producing anything you know they they seize the means of production but they're not really using it they're just hanging out yeah they're, they're sharing what they've got yeah <laughs> yeah I, i'm gonna try and pull it back i'm sorry <laughs> <laughs> um i went over the contestants there's one one of them one more observation i like to make is that mario lopez refers to caleb as beast mode cowboy caleb and there's presumably a story behind that name but i just like to think mario lopez saw this man and thought beast mode cowboy i mean it's not impossible although i suspect this was all written Mm. at least everything everything that lopez says Uh, he's a very natural presenter oh yeah, yeah i mean he's not bad in this no no no, there's a reason why he has had the success that he has. I mean, he does daytime talk shows. I think he's hosted award shows as well. Yeah, he's weirdly carved out this niche for himself. I think he figured out that he was not a great actor, but he is personable and he's uh, friendly and he has a friendly face hmm. and he has leveraged that into a very successful career uh, that I don't begrudge at all. I think he's done a great job and I like him. That's, I really like Mario Lopez. I think it's hard not to like, that's a fist shark joke is, is how uh, impossible it is to not like Mario Lopez. He, uh, at one point in the series, we had him attempt a bad boy image and he just couldn't do it. (laughs) I read up about him. He does do martial arts. And one of Mm -hmm. my ideas for improving this show is that he'll just start randomly fighting the contestants. Like, full contact. Like, a surprising amount of the contestants mention martial arts. So, if Mario Lopez, just in the middle of bantering, just roundhouse kicked them. This was all a fever dream, but did I not see someone perform some Taekwondo kick? Oh, yeah, they did. Uh, it was Wu being very boisterous. <laughs> mm. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, I mean, I looked on l- later episodes, and more people uh, talked about doing martial arts. So, again... It's more interesting than the Candy Crush. So we get into the first qualifying round, which is called Jelly Time. And basically the teams have to play Candy Crush. Tasty. And this is this is a fundamental flaw, I think, as well. It sounds weird to say this, but everything in the Candy Crush game show is people playing Candy Crush with mild obstacles. Yeah, they're they're like giving them some sort of uh, physical impediment to easily playing Candy Crush. And the thing is, they're not even very... Like, I wanted to see more danger, but everything is so safe. Like, it's not as if you're watching, like, Wipeout or something, where people are going to fall 10 feet into a pool of water. Right. Well, they're they're kind of limited by 
the format of Candy Crush, mm. just generally speaking, because if you're going to play Candy Crush, everything you do now has to be two dimensional. Mm. All the interaction is going to be with a flat screen on in some fashion. I mean, the first one is basically there's a touch screen, but the contestants are connected by a long, firm candy cane, like back to back. And the show doesn't really explain the rules, but I think they have to like switch each other around when they make a match. But essentially what you're looking at is two people tagging in to play Candy Crush on a big screen. Yeah. Yeah, it's just like it's an unnecessary three-legged race of a game that's a one-player game. No, I mean, I can see where there's some attempt at this being interesting because the players are back-to-back. And in theory, that prevents them from seeing the screen before they are in position to play. And so they can't anticipate the move. So that would slow you down. In practice, that doesn't seem to be the case because everyone's just got their neck craned back. <laughs> yes. Um, it, it is, it's awkward is the word I would use to describe it. Um, it's not a terrible idea, but it's it's not good. It's more of a thing that, like you said, it's awkward. It makes it slightly more difficult to play but at the end of the day it is still just a pattern recognition you swipe things so the other thing and i feel like this is a huge major flaw in the show and that's the editing tasty like i said it's a pattern recognition game so to enjoy it you have to be able to look at the screen continuously and then be like, oh, that one, that one, that one, that one. Yes, absolutely. But the way they edit it is that that screen is never actually shown for any more than like five seconds. <laughs> five? I, that's generous. Mm. I'm I'm seeing like, you know, two, three second cuts. And yeah, it's not enough time for you as the viewer to observe a move or a better move or a different move than what they do. So it's hard for you to get invested in the gameplay. Well, and I think that it's because the editor realized that it's not an interesting shot for TV. No, it's not. (laughs) It had no business being on the TV in the first place. It is just, especially in this game, because you have the four teams competing against each other. So you have four different game boards that theoretically as a viewer you have to pay attention to. Yeah. Sometimes they show like a side-by-side view of the game board with a sign saying, play along at home. But again, (laughs) that's shown for like five seconds. And it's like, before you even like readjust your mind to this new board, they'll show you somebody else. And then you're just starting all over again. And this is what I feel is, despite all the movement... And there's so much movement and so much color and so much sound. It's very boring because you can't actually focus on anything that's happening. Yeah. Yeah. You just get like a sensory overload. And and me personally, I just I just have to look away because there's just too many things. But also you don't get enough of any of those things. Well, uh, the goal of this show is not to get you to watch the show. <laughs> Like it is seriously the goal of the show is for you to tap out of watching the show at some point and play the game because it's not possible for you to do both at the same time. 
You can't divide your attention in that way. And the show is so manic and so quickly edited that it's harder to focus on. It is actually, they are manipulating you to play Candy Crush. Mm. But the thing is, I'm not coming out of this now thinking I want to play Candy Crush. Because I can't Were even... you going to play Candy Crush in the first place? No, but theoretically the show should make Right, me. because that's the only way you wind up watching this fucking show. Is if you were watching Big Brother and it ended, and now you're watching Candy Crush, or you decided you were going to watch Candy Crush because you like to play Candy Crush already. That, that's the two options for this. But theoretically, the idea should be they should cross-promote each other. And this really, like, I you, I've, I feel like I've come out of this knowing less about Candy Crush than I did going in. Well, they did do kind of an okay job with having the first episode have Big Brother contestants. And Big Brother is, is your lead-in from Sunday nights. It's, it's I believe I read that it was Big Brother than yeah. the show. And presumably they've done the market research to know that the people watching Big Brother are playing Candy Crush at the same time. And so then it's just on paper, it's a natural conclusion. Like, okay, let's make a game show about this thing that you're already doing. Theoretically, the problem is that nothing about this feels like playing a mobile game. And I feel like that's the problem. Bubble Bears. I think they could have done this show, but they needed to make it casual, low stakes, with long, continuous takes, with just like charming guests bantering with mario lopez oh so you mean they should have made a british version (laughs) (laughs) i was gonna say they should have made a twitch stream and put that on tv the other thing that perhaps might be uh alien to you as the uk viewer is uh, american tv is very ad centric and so I, I don't know how how roughly uh, or how frequently oh ads... there are far more ads okay in this yeah than there and, are in the UK. and so you know that this is also effectively just a vehicle to deliver advertisements to people you know more ads that your second screen is playing this while you're playing Candy Crush in your hand that was somebody's take you know so the first game here Jeremy and Wu win and they bounce off each other and jump around a lot. They then play a game which is essentially they stand on a platform above the horizontal touch screen and use like a stick to touch it. And they do apparently quite well. I don't really have any frame of reference for the game at this point. But it seems like the best option, like objectively, because they can actually see the whole board very easily. Whereas the later ones, we'll get into that, but they just don't seem like very good games fundamentally. Well, how are they... So they're suspended from this platform. Mm. I'm trying to figure out how are they moving... Oh, okay, the platform has controls on it. So one of them is moving this platform that they're standing on that's suspended above the stage with this joystick. Yeah, And the other has a long candy cane with a pointing finger hand on the end of it to do the swiping on the board yeah. uh, below them. And this is interesting. This is not a bad little game. It's a kind of a cool way to approach doing this. But again, 
it's the same activity of you're doing a, a two-dimensional thing, at least from a, a visual perspective. At this point in the show, because we're focusing on one team at a time doing it, they can focus more attention on their activity and the big board. Mm. So that could be worse. I, I feel like most of these games, they just didn't play test before they went to production. They just are like, Here, yeah. here's here's a game, do it. <laughs> Wait till you see that American Gladiators documentary we were talking about. <laughs> That'll give you some insight into how these things do get put together. Um, and I suspect that's probably the case. I, I suspect that there was very limited testing of this, probably limited focus testing, either that, or they'd already spent so much money that they just had to go ahead regardless of the focus testing that they might've done. Well, they spent so much money on the biggest touch screen <laughs> in the world. Yeah. Two of them. And then the next game is just, I feel is so like banged out in five minutes in the writer's room. One player has to throw a piece of, I guess, foam or plastic candy into a box, and then their teammate has to swipe that colour of candy on the board. And it just seems like Rick and Morty. I don't know how familiar you are with it, but there's one when they're essentially like Rick sets up like a series of challenges, and it's all kind of like Saw and that kind of thing. But then one of the challenges, he just goes... Oh, I couldn't think of anything. Uh, just throw hoops for a while. Try and make some baskets. I feel like this is just the writers being like, I I don't know another way we can make Candy Crush interesting. Let's just have them throw candy into a box. Well, but at least this introduces a challenge that is different from some just you know, basic physical interaction uh, or obstruction. Here, they are at least limited by the selection of their partner as to what color they're supposed to match. But it's so basic. <laughs> well, okay, but it's Candy Crush. Candy Crush is basic. Yes. Okay, so here's the problem as I'm looking at it, though. Mm. The players are being told what fruit they're supposed to grab. So as to indicate which one there's definitely going to be a color match of once the fruit or candy, I don't know, plush toy or whatever it is they're throwing gets handed to them. So they already know what to look for. That's dumb. <laughs> the way to do this is have the player in the back choosing the color based off of seeing the board ahead of them, throwing it to their partner who then has to find a match of that color that your partner's already seen. Mm. Do you mean like the partners can't communicate? Right. The partners can't communicate, but the one in the back is selecting the color that they have to use, throwing it to the other one who then has to find one that works. But the player in the back already knows it's there because they've seen it, right? Mm. That introduces a little bit of a, a, a team-based challenge element. This really literally is telling one person to get this color and throw it over so that the other person can then find that color also. Yes. And it, that's, there's nothing to that. For this one, Devon and Paul win. And they pick a game, and this is like going to be half the challenges on the touchscreen involve being suspended on ropes. First of all, I question their logic in having Devon who's clearly much smaller than Paul, being the one to try and pull the ropes. 
because she kind of seems to be struggling with Paul's body weight. And the other thing about these ropes is the rope system doesn't work very well. A lot of the time, and not just in this game, in other games involving the ropes, the player is just flailing around helplessly. Well, that's because this is hard to do. Mm, It looks very hard to do. Far harder than the other games. Mm -hmm. And they're like bouncing away from the touchscreen and they can't reach it. This is another example of uh, a game that probably, yes, needed more testing. Mm. You can't get close enough to the screen because you're being pulled back. That that could have used some refinement. They need like a counterweight or something to like just keep them in position, you know, arm's length from the screen. Right. Yeah. We see it in later ones as well is that sometimes like they'll spin around and I don't know if they're supposed to be spinning around or not. It just seems like it just seems like a fundamental flaw in how they've set up these ropes that a lot of the time the players just can't play the game. And it's cutting so quickly as well between everything that it just becomes even more confusing. You can't tell what they're even trying to do at any point. So they only get 16 matches on this one, the Vaughn and Paul. And I don't blame them at all because it looks very difficult. The next qualifying round, we have them running through essentially like rope mazes. Uh, like there's a series of like two-dimensional setups where you have lots of ropes and they have to crawl through them to get to the screen and it's also clear that it's really just too easy like one of the caleb he goes cowboy beast mode and just dives straight through these ropes and doesn't seem to have any trouble it isn't a challenge it's just like what you said earlier conrad it's just kind of awkward this is just slow and weird Mm watching them just like work through this and have to go it's not dynamic it's not energetic it, there's such a dissonance between the action that you are witnessing on the screen and the volume of the crowd response it's so hard to imagine anybody being legitimately this excited for what is happening in front of them yes and you know i mean we we respond very well to signs that read applause in this country <laughs> Uh, we're great at it. They must have just had a sign blinking throughout the entire show saying, scream. They did. No, they did. (laughs) Yeah, no, no, they absolutely did. They had a sign up the whole time that said applause. That's, yes, that is how we handle studio audiences here. And the the licorice maze, it it looks like something that is a challenge, but like you're saying, they just shot right through it. Like, it's strange... Maybe from the player's perspective, you can just see like the perfect path, uh, but it doesn't, you know, it looks more dynamic from the side. I I don't know. I think they're all just very flexible ropes. Mm. Like they were, I I get the impression they were terrified of somebody actually injuring themselves on this. Yeah. So they don't get caught up in the ropes. Now, if they, I think if they were really struggling to get through, and then you can watch that and, again, sympathize with the person or like... Yeah, but then it's so slow that it's not engaging enough. They had this same contest on uh, Nickelodeon Guts. Um, yeah. And and I recall it being a lot more challenging for those kids. Uh, I don't know if it's just a kids versus adults thing or if, if maybe they just... It was just straight up harder. I think making it more difficult would be the way to go. But the problem is... 
no matter what they do with the challenges, at the end of them, they're going to be playing Candy Crush. <laughs> yeah. So next one, we have Kelly and Joe win this one. And then they do a thing where they wheel around on a connected cart on top of a horizontal touchscreen. Yeah. Because the thing with this one is that two people can play at once. Right. Theoretically, you can do twice as much as what the previous games have. And they do make 45 matches, which I think is the record for this episode. But I think it's Kelly as well, because you can hear her shouting instructions to Joe as to what to do. My conception of this is that she is just really wanting to get her house. (laughs) Yeah, that's the vibe I'm getting. She needs a place to live. (laughs) She is really going in for this. She is laser-focused. She also, I I think, is mostly just shouting the instructions. I I think at a certain point, she stops even attempting to to make the swipe. She's just like, do this, do this, do this, and he he does it. (laughs) I I could see that because, I I mean, the other one, Joe, is, like, it's clear Kelly's the dominant one in their relationship. (laughs) We end up with just uh, Frankie and Caleb, and we get a compulsory photo of Frankie and Ariana Grande to prove they're indeed related, or at the very least have been in the same room before. And I read he's actually her, her half-brother, not even full brother. They're half <laughs> That's the thing as well. He's he's her half-brother. It's like, it feels very, like, we couldn't get Ariana Grande, but here's a photo of somebody who once met her. <laughs> And here's her mum in the audience. Isn't that amazing, everyone? Now, in their game, Frankie and Caleb are suspended on, like, the same ropes together with Frankie higher up than Caleb. And I did not have Frankie pegged as the top, but there you go. (laughs) And this is one where they're clearly struggling, especially Caleb on the bottom. He just seems to spend half his time flailing and spinning around it just looks like they're not very good at the games in general but i feel really sorry for them (laughs) i don't understand how their vertical movement is being handled it's random it's random yeah the ropes just take them to random areas of the screen oh and i'm i'm watching them miss a really really obvious huge swipe opportunity and that's incredibly but this is just dumb this game you can't you're way too close to the screen to see what's around you i would expect Mm. you've got nobody further back who can tell you what to look at yeah and you have no control over your movement with which to like get to a place even if you could see it at a distance um this is really dumb I, I mean, I think it is supposed to be the idea there are better games than others, because whoever wins the first qualifying round gets to pick, right. But this game is so bad, like, it just, it doesn't even seem, like, entertaining. Not, like, entertainingly bad or entertainingly hard, it's just, like, awkward, where you you just see them really struggling to even play the game. So, the final game is... Surprisingly enough, the two teams playing Candy Crush. What? <laughs> oh, what a twist. I know. And I, I really thought they were going to go out there and have them play a Call of Duty match. You know, 
against each other, but they went with Candy Crush. Well, we all make choices, I guess. In this one, one player plays on the horizontal touchscreen to unlock a key to unlock the controls for the ropes holding the other player on the vertical touchscreen. And I have no idea why this is a final game, because it's it, it, it just seems arbitrary. I love in the ex- explanation of the rules, Mario Lopez comes out and he's like, and then they get a real key, and he's so excited about this real key. I like his thing as well, where he's saying like, and then they have to run over to the lock, and he does little tippy-tappy feet <laughs> holding the big key, smiling. Like, he is really trying. It's It, it looks like he's talking to a toddler. <laughs> Um, and this is a point where somebody suddenly breaks in the viewer or whoever recorded this. Yes. Who hasn't said a word, but apparently Jeremy's play is so bad, they're just like, I have to intervene here. <laughs> well, there, I mean, yeah, there's, there is a very obvious move that would end Jeremy's portion of the game that he, he cannot see for a solid, like, 20 seconds. But the thing is, again, he's standing on top of the board, so I don't really blame him. It would be so hard to... Yeah, it, it's, it, it has to be difficult to take in that visual information from that proximity. Yeah, you're just too close to the screen. Which is the thing they always told us not to do when we were <laughs> kids. But nowadays, you've got the biggest touch screen in the world, and you have to operate it from one foot away. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like absolute hell. That is what we're living through, so this tracks. (laughs) This final game is just all the flaws. The rope system is ropey. I deliberately wrote that pun in. The the editing is too fast to follow. The games themselves are essentially Candy Crush. Everybody shouting. Mario Lopez, I haven't really talked about this, but he is struggling to provide any kind of interesting comedy on events. Well, and that's one of the things I noticed too. Uh, I actually, I don't know why, but I watched this this pilot a second time um, last night and I was thinking like, comparing it to like another show like American Ninja Warrior where they they clearly have pre-written some lines about the contestants and then those two hosts will pepper them in. They didn't do anything like that with this show. They're just like, Mario, you got to announce what number they're up to the whole hour. (laughs) Jeremy made a match there. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, they've missed one. Oh, they've made a match after all. Okay, now this would not work in all circumstances, certainly. But here we have people who have been contestants on shows on your network which have physical challenge aspects to them already you have the research like you know what they did in those you could reference back to those toss in a little like lower third screen display of them doing some physical activity in that other show which roughly equates to giving them an advantage or perhaps a disadvantage in the thing that they're doing now. A story. You've got, yeah, you've got something there for the viewer to grab onto and and give them uh, a connection to the participants. But yeah, this is just like, oh, oh, we're up to 30. Okay. (laughs) I I could read that on the screen, Mario. Um, (laughs) Yeah. And so in the end, Joe and Kelly win. And I'm honestly very happy for Kelly for achieving her real estate dreams. A little pop-up comes up 
saying that Joe and Kelly have made Survivor proud. I really doubt the abstract noun of Survivor cares. This show was surprisingly cancelled after nine episodes. I did skim through some of the other episodes. It's all just more of the same. They don't seem to have changed anything. I'm surprised they made it to nine. They would have all been shot at the same time, almost certainly. The way we produce game shows in the United States, um, for the most part, well, and this is how we produce all television, you get a series order that you make X number of episodes. And the way they will do game shows is they will often shoot multiple episodes in a day, like in a single day, edit them all and then release them over whatever the you know run of the show is. So chances are, The nine episodes of the Candy Crush game show were probably filmed over a period of one to two weeks, maybe three, Mm. um, and all at the same time. So there there wouldn't have been much opportunity to switch it up. Which I think they really needed. I think they really needed some feedback. And I, I know I keep mentioning this American Gladiators documentary, but if you go give that a watch, that actually uh, puts a lot of context into how this this works that first season uh the first season of american gladiators was um i think nine episodes or eight episodes maybe 13 and the second season or the second half of the season yeah it was a 13 episode order and then they ordered a second half season of 13 episodes and they dramatically changed the show between the first half and the second half because they had to shoot all of the first ones at once with their limited production budget and then do it again for the second half. And they made new games. They changed out gladiators. They did a whole bunch of changes in that time, but they have to happen all at once. And then you, you run those and then you do another iteration for your next season that introduces new elements or, or whatever like jeopardy and wheel of fortune. These shows will do their, their week of broadcasts in an afternoon. Yeah. I mean, that's what uh, I've read about um, Steve Harvey on Family Feud. You know, they crank out five episodes in a day and especially especially um, Price is Right. It's it's like one minute of real time is one minute of showtime. They they don't they mm-hmm. barely barely touch it in, on, in the edit. What I was kind of hoping to see, though, was that we'd have more variation in the games. But it's kind of clear that these are the games they came up with. It is kind of like there's no sense of like, hmm, I wonder what kind of game they're going to play. Oh, wait, they're playing the one with the stick and they're on the platform again. Yep, that's it. Like, these aren't intrinsically exciting games, even though they do involve the biggest touchscreen in the world. It needed some variation on the Candy Crush aspect of it. Like that's all. Like, and that's not. I don't think a crazy ask that you make the play of Candy Crush somewhat unique to the experience of the game show that differentiates it from the one that they're playing at home. Because for one, you have the world's largest touchscreen. That is an asset. But also, you're operating within a different medium and a different context for what you are displaying. You can switch it up. You have that freedom to do that. I mean, they probably didn't. The King probably required that it just be Candy Crush at the end of 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 every round. I mean, they 
they could have partnered with with Puzzle Quest or oh any number of like mobile games. I mean, King owns plenty of like brands. They could have put them all together. The King version of Super Smash Brothers had people playing like more of a variety, but here they just play Candy Crush. I mean, they have Activision Blizzard. They could have put World of Warcraft on screen. Well, and now you do have to. You have to also keep in mind the audience that they are targeting with this. This is a a primetime television show on CBS, which is a network that demographically skews older. That's why it's Candy Crush. It's because, no, because they're aiming at wine moms Mm -hmm. and the late middle age viewers who might not have the familiarity with their phones that say... Uh, millennials or gen xers do and they they're trying to draw them to candy crush and so it needs to be light it needs to be not too in the weeds or complex a game so i get that i can see why you wouldn't put a world of warcraft in there or you wouldn't you know a call of duty or any of those things because they're too technical to really convey what's going on in a meaningful way that would get people interested in those products. And that's the point of the show, is to get people interested in the product of King. I I do agree. I don't think this is that bizarre an idea. I think it makes sense, like you said, from a corporate point of view, from cross-promotion, that kind of thing. There is a very similar kind of vibe and demographic between game shows and Candy Crush. Yep. It's very casual, doesn't require a lot of investment. But this is not the show that worked. (laughs) No, it does not work. It's not entertaining. It's just loud and uh, bright and a bit obnoxious. Bubble bears. Uh, And ultimately boring. That is the fundamental thing, and... I was thinking about this because a lot of reviewers were kind of making the comparison to Twitch streaming. But the thing is, with Twitch streaming, it kind of shows people will just watch each other play video games. I've I've seen streamers make very entertaining streams playing Japanese Uno games for the PS1. The fundamental concept of having a TV show where people play video games i don't think is that out there but i don't the executives on this didn't have confidence in their product they overloaded it with noise and movement because they were like people are gonna find this boring just watching a video game well i i hmm okay so i want to like draw a distinction though between what like people on twitch do versus what this is trying to do. I'll put it this way, okay? That comparison would be apt if the most important person on this show was Mario Lopez. And I I say that because when you're watching Twitch, you might be watching to see the game be played, but you are generally watching for the person that is doing the playing, right? And that kind of relationship is going to be different and the type of person who performs in that role is probably going to be specifically good at making that content entertaining and 
here, Mario Lopez is the only consistent element that we're going to have from one episode to the next. If we were going to make that comparison, it would be on Mario to make this work. And I don't think that that quite works as a, as a fair comparison. There's an investment that you can make in Twitch based on the person who's doing the playing that you can't make uh, with random individual who has no experience playing this game or no experience playing games in this context. It's not, not as entertaining to watch. And I, I don't think that they have the wrong idea about uh, video games being very watchable on television. I mean, at this point, we are six, seven years into esports broadcasts mm. on television. Um, the higher numbered ESPN channels airing League of Legends, uh, World Championships. These things have happened. We we know that there is an audience for watching video games be performed at least at a high level in a competitive sense. I just don't know that the casual thing works with that tie-in. Like I said earlier, I think if you make this much more low stakes and not somebody like Mario Lopez, somebody who can improvise and is able to have a long running, charming conversation with anybody off the street and then just have them play the game and let the audience see the game. Because this is kind of like esports, but you're watching the esports match with a host who doesn't know what's going on. Right. And at the same time, somebody is just alt-tabbing constantly between several different esports matches. Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, and I do think Mario Lopez is probably pretty good at doing this kind of work on something that has something to talk about, right? But there's nothing for him to even grab onto with Candy Crush. It's, it's not an exciting game to watch people play. I've got Conrad, I'd have an idea. Uh oh. So you want somebody with experience with video games, mm -hmm. experience with reality TV, mm -hmm. and is a charming, generally nice person who can uh, have like charming conversations. I think we know somebody who could fill that role. Puck. Oh, the Miz. The Miz would be good at this, actually. Yeah. Possibly the Miz. The Miz would be very good at this. I'm going to throw this out here. Jonathan Holmes. Not enough cum. That is the flaw. Not enough cum in the show. Yeah. No. I don't think it'd work. There'd have to be some real, real changes to the structure uh, to make that work. But, you know. Uh, no, I don't think Jonathan could save this. <laughs> Not even Jonathan could save this. God, no. No, Jonathan can't save this. I mean, maybe if they renamed it Cummy Crush. and <laughs> But even then, I mean, it, the fundamental gameplay problem is still there. Yeah. So, Conrad. Yes. Do you have anything you'd like to plug? Sure, I can do some plugging. Um, Jonathan, I'd like to plug Jonathan. Um, well, who would? I mean, he's just... You can find me doing nonsense on Twitter uh and instagram and blue sky i'm on that blue sky now that's conrad zimmerman pretty much everywhere i do podcasts i do a podcast uh called podquisition which you probably are familiar with if you're listening to this 
uh, Boston's favorite son, which you're probably familiar with if you listen to this. Um, I do a podcast about snacks called Let's Talk About Snacks with Lauren Morgan and my lovely wife, Linda. And um, oh, and I produce Red Planet, as I mentioned earlier. So you can go check that out. That's at uh, redplanetshow.com. You can find links to everything relating to that. I make anti-capitalist propaganda that people can buy at mercenarycreative.com, along with licensed Jimquisition merchandise. And uh, yeah, I, th- I think that's that's most of what I would uh, tell people to check out to see what I'm up to. Cool. Um, Daniel, do you have anything you'd like to plug? Yeah, actually, since uh, the last time we recorded, we did take a couple of months off uh, for just a planned hiatus. Um, I did come out with an album of uh, fantasy-themed dance music called Bewitching Tones, um, and uh, I'm sure we've got links to that. But I'll quickly just spell out my uh, URL is dweebjorst.bandcamp.com, and you can find Bewitching Tones there. I know it's a mouthful of letter soup to get to that but uh it's uh it's good stuff i recommend it if uh if you're into fantasy and dance music cool oh thank you very much for coming on conrad yeah thanks Conrad. well thank you so much for having me it was um an experience that i will remember for a bit <laughs> i mean that's more than i can say for the candy crush game i've got really bad short term oh the candy crush i will forget immediately yeah <laughs> And thank you, everybody, for listening. Bye-bye. So delicious.